0: Learn more online at MediaMakingChange.org. Today on our show, we're focusing on the work of the nonprofit WaterWatch.
1: This is Phil Bussey. It's the nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm joined with John DeVoe, who is executive director for WaterWatch. How are you today, John?
2: I'm good, thanks Phil. Thanks for having us on today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm just gonna start with the first line that pops up on the website, which says, without water watch, many rivers and streams uh, in Oregon would run dry. <laughs> so that, so, so, so obviously that, that tees your organization up. What, this is a big question, what are you watching for or who are you watching?
2: Well, let me me answer that by kind of talking about the origins of the organization. And um, our mission is to protect and restore stream flows in Oregon's rivers for fish, wildlife, and people who depend on healthy rivers. You know, we also take out some obsolete dams. We've got a real track record there and we secure balanced water policies that Oregon needs in a climate change world. And that's kind of our mission. But we got our start down in the Rogue River Basin back in the 1970s. And and what happened was people were doing kind of, uh, you know, woody debris and and physical restoration of, of streams. And then they would come back in the dry season and they'd see more water flowing in the adjacent irrigation canal than they would in the stream itself. And so they started investigating that and they learned that Oregon gave away water rights uh, for free without really any analysis of whether the water was actually available, without any analysis of the impacts on fisheries or other public uses of water and and they thought you know that's and and these processes were dominated by extractive interests agriculture municipal interests industrial interests and so they uh they said we really need an organization to provide some balance to this picture and so they formed water watch and water watch exists really to keep an eye on the decisions of the state of Oregon and other governmental agencies about water. And and not really the pollution side of things, but more the quantity side of things. How much water is in a river? How much water is in groundwater? Is it being used sustainably? Is it being used and allocated in ways that allow for fish to continue to exist? Salmon, trout, frogs, mussels, you name it. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're watching. We watch the government in its decisions about water, and we also watch uh, sometimes the users of water to make sure they're accountable and complying with the law.
1: Yeah. So, so I want to. Um, water rights is one of the things that you you mentioned, and obviously is is central to what you need to keep your eye on. Um, we're not going to cover water rights here sure. in, in a half hour. That's that's a full semester of, of, of law school. Um, but can we do a little bit of a cliff note version? How, how do water rights work? I mean, is it is it first in line? Uh, you know, first to make the claim on that that river. Um, you know, and 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 I would imagine that that puts farms right in the front, uh, and probably fish, and then even the tribal interest probably weren't recognized until later.
2: Yeah, that's, that's pretty much true. I mean, water law kind of had a start in the uh, 49er camps in the Sierra during the gold rush. And basically people would get there, stake a claim and then they'd start using water from a stream to wash the gravel to get the gold out. Oh, but then somebody else would show up and go upstream and divert the water upstream. So that, you know, to the person downstream. That was an interference with their use of water. So they worked out this rough frontier justice idea of first in time, first in right. And that notion has kind of spread all over the West. It's called, you know, two-bit words prior appropriation. It's basically first in time, first in right. And then you have this, this overlay of a bunch of legal systems that were designed to basically clear out the West of of indigenous people and make the West suitable for white settlement. And those laws uh, gave all sorts of preferences to homesteaders and people, and they invested public money in draining uh, large wetlands, for example, in the Klamath Basin, drain the wetlands, get the settlers in there who cares about the tribal interests, those folks were here first.
0: And so that's kind
2: of the the mixture of systems that works to give us the system we, in some ways, unfortunately have today, um, which is first in time, first in right. And it's also kind of a use it or lose it system in some ways, although there are nuances about that. Um, And that's kind of how it works. the people with the oldest rights get the first priority to use. If you're later, and fish and wildlife and environmental uses of water are almost always later, um, then there may not be any water left for those interests.
1: I mean, it it, it it's it's from a 21st century perspective. It seems so reverse, right? I mean, I mean, you know, fish and wildlife uh, and tribes. Uh, we're really first in time, and and yet uh, are at the back of the line. How how much work can you put in uh, to change that or to undo those laws? Is that something that Water Watch does? Is is lobby the state legislation or even federal law if necessary to 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 change those priorities, or is that just Is this something that's just set in stone and you just need to work around the laws that exist?
2: Well, we we do a little of both. And, you know, one thing that's very interesting on the tribal side of things is tribes have been more effective in the last couple decades um, in asserting their rights. And usually they are found to be first in line because their priority date, as it's called, is time immemorial. And so, They also have treaty rights um, from the 1850s. A lot of those treaties were entered into to hunt, gather, collect um, at the usual and accustomed places. And so that can create interest in water as well. And then the federal government has this obligation to provide water uh, for, for those uses as well. So tribes are beginning to get their rights recognized across the West what we work on is you know we work within the system to make sure that the laws that are actually on the books get followed and in a state like Oregon there are a lot of progressive laws on the books but there isn't always a lot of political will to to push those laws and make sure they're real out on the landscape and then we also work to to reform the system and that's going to be a multi-generational effort But we're a very persistent group and, uh, you know, it's happening over time. There are places in the world where systems like this have changed. In Australia, for example, in a very extreme drought, one river system said, okay, we're going to wipe the slate clean. We're going to start with a a survival flow for fish and then we're going to create a market on top of that. And people can come and and depending on how much water there is that year, they can buy and sell shares in the water. We'll also give everybody a share. Um, So there are examples around the world of sort of reform efforts. I don't know if we'll ever see something like that necessarily in Oregon. Um, But we are working now on the feasibility of some interesting ideas out in in the Mounder region. Uh, where, the, where the occupation was at the National Wildlife Refuge, there's a, lot, you know, there's a lot of use of groundwater out there. It's a very dry area and people are relying on this uh, you know, ancient groundwater pretty much, and they're using quite a bit of it. And so we're looking at systems that, that might uh, create a market out there or um, that might compensate people not to use groundwater. But to do that you got to have a lot of accountability you got to be able to say you can't have whack-a-mole situations where you pay somebody not to use it here but they go across the street and use it there
1: um, i mean in, i mean it seems sort of uh ironic that that in perhaps drought or scarcity of water areas may actually force reform quicker is that is that a uh appropriate statement or
2: well, you know, we have a saying, every year is a drought year for fish. And, and for salmon, that can be true because you've got this legacy of these antiquated laws and systems and, and they, they do take a lot of water out of streams. And, and now you have climate change on top of that, which is, is uh, you know, in some ways creating additional scarcity certainly for the environment and for for fish and wildlife and those uses. Um, So, you know, I think in some places it may force more change more rapidly. Uh, In other places, um, it may not. It's it's a very, very politicized situation with water. And so, um, you know, it, it kind of depends on how much political will and how much demand for reform there really is.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, and I look at um, you know was just down on the Willamette this uh, this morning, and uh, certainly have been by the Columbia recently, and I look at those two sort of marquee rivers, and it doesn't seem like there's any shortage of water. Am I am I am I missing out, or are those are those rivers that are not uh, uh, under threat in any way uh, in terms of scarcity of water? Well,
2: no, I mean. You have different issues on those rivers in addition to, you know, coming scarcity. The, the Columbia um, is, is hardly a river anymore. I mean, it's, it's been dammed in so many places that it's really a series of lakes. And salmon there really struggle to, the, the juveniles really struggle to get out to the ocean when it's time because, you know, salmon, juvenile salmon used to out migrate going backwards with their heads into the flow of the river. And that that's an indication of how much velocity there was in the water in the river. That's not the case anymore. Now they swim kind of aimlessly and get lost in these reservoir pools behind Bonneville and John Day and McNary and all the other dams. And some of those dams don't have fish passages you get higher in the basin. So while there isn't an immediate scarcity, there is a scarcity at certain times of year. And there used to be a big spring freshet on the Columbia that would push those juveniles out to the ocean and speed them on their way. That doesn't really exist anymore because water is being held back so that it can be released when hydropower demands it and uh, you know, when irrigation demands it. So it's a completely different run of the river than it used to be. And so there is scarcity in some ways there. Same thing on the Willamette. Um, you know, it's a highly modified system and fish are in big trouble there as well. And one of the reasons is that the way the river operates has been so modified by the presence of a lot of dams and altered stream flows.
1: We're gonna to go to a music break here in a second. And I wanna come back afterwards and talk more about dams and dam removal. John DeVoe is the executive director for Water Watch. Um, hey, you brought some music in for us. What what, what, what should we queue up?
2: Oh gosh, there's a lot of water music out there. Um, my father-in-law insisted on playing Handel's water music at my wedding. Uh, but today I, I brought a Joni Mitchell and Willie Nelson singing a duet about water. And the reason I brought that is, when I moved west 35 years ago, I had this little Honda Civic with a cassette player. And this was one of three cassettes we had on the way across the country, and uh, it got played over and over and over. So it was kind of drilled in my head, and I didn't realize at the time how much significance it would have.
1: It's a great song to take a listen to. This is the Nonprofit Happy Hour and X-Ray FM. phil bussy it's the nonprofit happy hour x-ray fm john devoe is executive director for water watch uh before our joni joni mitchell willie nelson song break we are talking about uh water law water rights um can i can i drop in my dad joke here what what did the fish say when it hit the wall (laughs) damn (laughs) um So removal of dams are obviously uh, an important part of water flow. Give us a success story to start with.
2: Oh, gosh. Well, in the Rogue River Basin, which was one of the original wild and scenic rivers in the country, um, there was a series of obsolete dams on the main stem rogue. There was Savage Rapids Dam, Gold Ray Dam, and the City of Gold Hill Dam. These were uh, known fish killers. They had impaired fish passage. And uh, over about two decades, Water Watch and other groups in the Rogue, including uh, you know Rogue River Keeper, uh, Headwaters, and then the Geos Institute, um, Rogue Valley Council of Governments, other folks um, were able to get those dams out, get them removed. Savage Rapids Dam was a big project. At the time, it was the largest dam removed in the United States, Uh, and then Gold Ray and Gold Hill were upstream. And, you know, it was a long, uh, long process and it kind of moved from conflict to compromise to collaboration, how a lot of these things do. But as a result, we've got 157 miles of free-flowing Rogue River. Um, we were also able to protect quite a bit of water with the removal of Savage Rapids Dam, and it it really is uh, arguably one of the most successful river restoration campaigns in the nation. And so it's it's very successful, and you see that in in uh, you know the movement of fish through the system, uh, the road even with, with compromised fish runs is, is often doing a better than some of the other major rivers on the West Coast. Um, it's become kind of a stronghold for salmon and steelhead. Um, and it's really a success story. And these were obsolete dams. Savage Rapids was replaced with pumps. The irrigation district was kept whole. Uh, Gold Ray was just an obsolete dam that, that was taken out. And the city of Gold Hill Dam was also replaced with pumps. So it's a real success story. And I think it demonstrates that we can take these dams out without these obsolete dams out, without compromising the folks who rely on them for some one reason or another.
1: I like, I like that flow that you set up, moving from conflict to compromise to collaboration. Um, I just want to hover over conflict for a moment. What, what is it, especially with these obsolete dams that, that, that uh people are holding on to or not wanting it removed what what is it that is it just tradition uh or what what is that people don't are worried about losing
2: well you know we're we're involved in a dam removal project down in the road now where uh this is a completely obsolete dam it has no useful purpose but the landowner says that they like to hear the sound of falling water when they eat breakfast, you know? And so there are things from that to, you know, dams are symbols of ideological progress. You know, you have the whole biblical dominion over nature concept out there. Um, You know, it becomes a flashpoint for people's ideologies. And um, do you value a free flowing river with healthy salmon runs? or do you, do you value something else? The thing is there are thousands and thousands of obsolete dams out there. There are others that are useful but extremely harmful and uh, take the lower four Snake River dams, for example. They generate some power, they have some irrigation uh, function and they do provide some navigation, but they're extremely harmful to salmon runs going into Idaho. So there are opportunities to replace the function of these dams with other things like wind power, solar power. We can modify irrigation diversions. In the case of obsolete dams, you know, our MO is to come into a landowner and say, we're happy to take this dam out. We will locate the money to get the job done. You don't have to pay for it. And this will actually be removing liabilities that you have by owning this obsolete structure that blocks potentially, you know, endangered species act listed fish from their habitat. But we still get a lot of resistance sometimes. And people are just not sure, you know, whether they they believe that, you know, you can get the job done, or they believe that, you know, this is a symbol of progress. Um, and so there's a lot of conflict around these, these dams. Um, but, you know we're, we're working through it. I think the trend is to is to move towards removing some of these structures that we really can do without.
1: Yeah, so I, I want to just finish talking up with a little a few questions about you. Um, you've been with Water Watch for almost two decades. Is that right? That's right. How did you first get involved?
2: Uh, I was in private practice in Portland for about 13 years. And, uh, I, the reason I went to law school was to work in conservation, but I'm not sure I knew what that meant. And, uh, you know, I, I just took the leap and decided that there was no time like the present to make that happen. And, uh, I had been doing some trial work and I, you know, I had this attitude, well, you can learn things quickly. So, uh, I thought I could be an executive director. So I applied for the position and, uh, and eventually got it, you know, a series of interviews and it worked out. But um, I didn't know what I was getting into. It was a huge change. And uh, it's been quite a quite a learning experience and very challenging work, but very interesting.
1: Yeah, and and I mean if you can go back to that first year, any advice you would give yourself? Oh gosh.
2: No, I mean, no regrets. I mean, if if you if you're out there listening and you th- want to do this kind of work, it can happen. Um, your first job may not be your ideal job, but you can get there if, if you keep your eye on the ball. And uh, if you want to do this kind of work, there's plenty of it out there and you can make it happen.
1: John DeVoe is executive director for Water Watch. Thank you so much for talking to us and, and thanks for the uh, keeping the eye on the streams and making sure that they're healthy and flowing in Oregon.
2: Thanks, Phil, and thanks for doing this show. It's really great to have uh, an opportunity for nonprofits to get the word out.
0: The Nonprofit Happy Hour is made possible by Beneficial State Bank, a certified B BCOR that holds to what it calls a triple bottom line of social justice, environmental well-being, and economic sustainability. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our executive producer and editor is me, Carly Meisberger. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.